The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. No mai hoki mai ki fold imihine ko dangri tokuingwa. My guest today is Wendy Ewans. She is, for another couple of weeks at least, the uh, chief executive of Able New Zealand, uh, which is a, the it's a it's a trust that that sort of grew out of was 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 uh, created. Um, from a, a unit within TVNZ about nine years ago uh, to increase accessibility of content uh, for for New Zealanders, uh, largely through captioning and and audio description. And Wendy has run it throughout. Effectively, it's, it was it was her initiative. And prior to that, she was the access services manager at TVNZ. So this is and her first job. Ever um, out of out of university was as a you know, creating captions um, for for TVNZ. So this is really her her life's work um, in in this space, and she's she's very passionate about it, and that that's manifest on this podcast. And I think why why I was very excited to have Wendy on is I think that as a media um, we we basically think that. We just make stuff and then put it out, and it's all good. And there is actually there are multiple steps along the way that that mean that content doesn't necessarily reach its audience. Some of that is about distribution, but some of it's about accessibility. And there are and I, since I've been doing this podcast, I've I've received regular correspondence from from people about uh, accessibility and and why I didn't ask, say, Kevin Kenrick, the former TVNZ CEO, about the ability of uh, TVNZ on-demand viewers to get the same caption experience as people who watch on on linear, and uh, Wendy speaks to that about the challenges of it, and and really what the opportunity is, I think, for all of us in media to do to do better and and uh, serve a more total community than we do at present. Um, so we talk about that, talk about the way that technological change has impacted. For better and worse, really largely for better, I think, um, in terms of overall accessibility within all that media uh, encompasses. I mean, say what you want about the tech platforms and any regular listeners to, to this podcast know that I have a pretty complicated feelings about them. But the likes of YouTube and Facebook uh, and, and even TikTok and so on, they their sort of AI speech to caption um, software, for example, 
largely does has made a tremendous amount more content accessible than than was probably the case uh, in previous eras. Um, so we talk about that. We talk about the way that accessibility has changed over the years, and um, uh, and a little bit about the basement, which she, she's chair of the trust that that oversees the, the basement theatre um, in Tamaki Makoto, which is a, a place I've spent a lot of time and really really admire for the way it helps nurture and grow and provide opportunity to diverse. Uh, comic and theatre talent uh, over the years. Uh, so, look, there's a lot in it. It's, it's really, really, I think, important lesson for anyone who's, who's in the media. Uh, Wendy is so passionate and, and articulate on this topic. Uh, she's finishing up and Abel is going to be taken over by Dan Buckingham, who has also been on this podcast, who I think will do a terrific job there. Uh, but she talks at the end about what she'd like to do in future and it's you know, I think hopefully it's, it's a role in the new public media entity or at least consulting into it because there's a, a real opportunity for, for that entity to really change the, the way that the, the whole of the New Zealand community can access uh, what we make as an industry. This is Wendy Ewan's On The Fold. Tanakwe, Wendy, and welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, Duncan. Thanks for having me. Um, so I wondered if you could start by explaining what what Able is and and how it came about because I think it's a really it's it's a kind of organisation that might be invisible to to a lot of people but it does an incredibly important job and I think you know it's almost like a credit to the country and to you that it exists. Yeah, sure. So Able is an independent not-for-profit organisation. We're fully funded by New Zealand on Air to provide closed captioning and audio description for TV broadcasters. And we have been around for about nine years now. So we, the, the services that we provide used to be provided by a department that was sort of nested within TVNZ. And back in 2013, TVNZ went through this process of really streamlining their business and focusing on becoming this very commercial sort of machine. And um, as part of that, they were really shaking off some of the public service things that had been around for a long time. And so um, our department that provided the captioning and AD services um, from within TVNZ was part of that restructure. So TVNZ essentially um, made the business decision to outsource what we were doing. Um, And we worked with New Zealand On Air to set up ABLE as an independent not-for-profit organisation. So we launched back in late 2013 and have been, yeah, been working um, from ABLE ever since. Was that a... It, it's a weird thing because at the time it must have felt, you know, I can imagine that you'd have some quite complicated feelings about that being sort of jettisoned out of this organisation despite the manifest importance of the work you're doing. But when you think about what the country's manifest media needs are, it actually is better for all of us if that is not contained within a, a, you know, a big state-owned a corp, you know, semi-corporate, but is actually a sort of an independent entity and available to kind of adapt to to changing opportunities and, and business realities, right? Yeah, that's right. So when um, I first found out that TVNZ was thinking about outsourcing our department, I remember feeling this terror of, you know, I'm going to have to make my whole team redundant, we're all going to have no jobs, and what's going to happen to the accessibility services that we provide, which we know 
that lots of people rely on captioning and audio description to be able to access TV. We were all really proud of the services we provided and felt that they were of, you know, utmost importance. And so um, it felt a bit terrifying to be cast out from the mothership, so to speak. And um, actually once we landed on that idea of an independent not-for-profit organisation, it it felt really right. It felt like what New Zealand needed. Um, it felt really right that we would make the most of the skilled people that we had in our team at TVNZ and that we would continue to receive that NZ on air funding. Um, we, we were really supported by New Zealand on air's chief executive at the time, Jane Wrightson, and also um, there was a, an independent board established to support the kind of the launch of ABLE, um, so the Media Access Charitable Trust Board. We had a couple of founding trustees, um, Lewis Grant and Paul France, who were really passionate and committed to making sure that, that ABLE happened, basically. Um, and so even though it felt really scary at the time, actually once, once the idea started to take shape, it felt like this was actually what was always needed. So I'm really grateful now that it happened, but at the time, remember feeling you know, very unsure about what the future looked like. Um, but it's been a really great move for accessibility or media accessibility in New Zealand because we can act independently of any broadcaster. We can work with all broadcasters and we're, we're totally masters of our own destiny, um, so to speak. Do you feel like the, the, the accessibility, the, the importance of it is well understood by the media more broadly? I should say that whenever I have the head of a major media company on on this podcast, or you know, and, and semi regularly over the years, I have had correspondence from from people saying that it's not enough, and um, it does seem to be something that that at times there is a a sense that you know this, and it's a very large number of New Zealanders who who um, benefit from from this, but they they seem at times, uh, by, by portions of our media to be less considered. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'd hope that that's changing, but certainly the, the, the correspondence I've had has reflected that. You know, what, what is your sense of, 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 how, of how important it is and of how the, the industry is engaging w- with, with you and with, with, the, with those needs? Yeah, I think that the, certainly the awareness of accessibility is growing. So I think that the major media organisations and TV broadcasters, so TVNZ and Discovery, um, Sky or or Prime, um, who we provide services for, um, to some extent, I think they absolutely value and know that captioning and audio description are really important services for a huge number of people in our community. But I think what's not happening at the moment is the prioritisation of accessibility over all the other important things that major media organisations are dealing with. So, Basically, I think what we've found at ABLE is that generally media organisations don't do anything they don't have to do, um, and particularly anything that's going to cost them money. So we're lucky um, to have New Zealand on-air funding to support ABLE services, but we do rely on broadcasters having the capability to actually broadcast captioning and audio description, and that is currently not, not consistent. So really our goal is to Im- improve the consistency of the availability of captioning and audio description. But at the moment you have situations where you have um, 
something might be captioned or audio described on broadcast TV and then it's not available on an on-demand platform, for instance. That's what I've heard a, a whole bunch of times that the on-demand space, which is where all the gravity is heading, is actually paradoxically, because you'd think there'd be technology that would, would work for this, that it's a, it's a real lottery as to whether it exists Absolutely, there. that's that's exactly right. And the technology is there, so absolutely it's possible to have captioning and audio description on an online platform. Um, and, you know, Netflix does it really well. Um, they have 100% of content on Netflix is captioned. There's a pretty wide portion of content is audio described. Um, so it's very possible. It's just that broadcasters have to prioritise that and decide that they think it's really important. And, you know, what I think is what I think broadcasters currently are not really um, grasping is the size of that audience. So, you know, you have 38% of New Zealanders use captions on a regular basis. 7% of New Zealanders use audio description on a regular basis. So that's a huge number of people. And we actually know that it's um, over half of those people are not using it for the, the obvious reasons. So closed captioning obviously benefits the, the deaf and hard of hearing community, but there's a huge range of other people that use captions as well. So people that are learning English, um, people that are struggling to hear for any reason, um, people you know scrolling through videos on public transport are using captions so that they don't have to listen to the content. And so captions actually have a much wider benefit. And same for audio description. So I think broadcasters in New Zealand are still just really only at the very early stages of getting to grips with the size of that audience and that potential audience if they were to make their content accessible. We're speaking, I think, a week or two before you finish up as as chief executive of a, an organisation that you essentially started. And, and because you were on TVNZ side before that, this has been on some level a, a really defining um, uh, focus of your career. I want to talk about the technology side of it shortly because I think that's really fascinating. But I, I wondered if you could um, maybe just, just explain what it was that, that drew you to the space and what and why you found it so um, nourishing to the extent that you've devoted so much of your working life to it to this point. Yeah, sure. Um, so my career path has been somewhat accidental, which is probably what everybody says. Um, but I I did an English literature degree at uh, the University of Otago, and I had no real idea what I was going to do with that. Um, I was looking for a job in Auckland and I saw this job ad for a caption producer role and it said, um, basically, if you love words and you love TV, this is the job for you. And I went, oh, that sounds pretty perfect. Um, and it was an entry-level graduate role at TVNZ. So yeah, way back in 2007, I joined TVNZ as a caption producer and um, worked my way through a few different roles in the department and eventually became the manager of the TVNZ Access Services Department. Um, and I would say when I first started at TVNZ and first took on that role, I had no real concept of captioning um, and who who produced captions. I, I guess I just imagined they were just there. They just there. happened. They just <laughs> happened. Yeah. yeah. But there's actually a, a team of um, very skilled and dedicated people uh, producing those captions. And so, yeah, really it was a, a great um, behind-the-scenes look at, at what, you know, how, how that – that service um, actually got to where. So I, yeah, as soon as I joined the team, I thought, oh man, I've found my dream job um, and just loved loved that we were providing a service that made a difference, but also um, particularly 
in those first few years, you know, I spent a lot of time consuming TV and um, and typing out words and, and and loved that side of it as well. But um, certainly as as my career has progressed and I've moved into more kind of management and um, looking at, I guess, our strategy and the, the future of ABLE, um, I've, I've loved the opportunity to connect with the, the communities that we serve and learn. I've learned so much about the importance of captioning and audio description to people and to people's lives, you know, because the services we provide, even though in some ways it's providing access to entertainment or news, important information, it's also just about social inclusion and enabling people that rely on those access services to be totally included in um, in New Zealand television and New Zealand content. Is there a particular moment or... or instance of that where where which which sort of stands out in your memory as you look back across it now where I'm sure that there are heaps and I put you on the spot a little bit here but you know I think that 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 sense of inclusion thing it, it's so powerful and that's one of the things I love about media is that it is this this thing this big unruly beast that can at, at, at its best sort of tie us together or, or prompt conversations and so on if you if you feel excluded from that um you know, whether that's by language or, or accessibility, it really does on some level kind of pull, you're, you're less of a citizen um, or you can feel that way as a, as a result. Yeah, well, what's, what's that community side or how has that felt to you at, or, or at, in some moment if there's something that kind of sticks out? Yeah, I think um, the Christchurch earthquakes really drove home the importance of access to information in a time of crisis. So ABLE or actually... Um, the services were still at TVNZ then, but providing live captioning for the rolling news coverage was pretty, um, I mean, difficult, but knowing and hearing from people around the country that were relying on those captions really drove home the importance of access to information and, you know, information that was um, critical for people to have. Um, so people around the country were waiting to find out if their families were okay. They were waiting for civil defence information and providing that service felt extremely important and, and really drove it home. In terms of our audio description service, which benefits the people that are blind or have low vision, um, I attended this event soon after we launched the audio description service and remember chatting to this woman who was blind and was telling me how much she loved uh, a David Attenborough series, Africa, that we had audio described. And I had previously thought that audio description didn't really add a lot to a documentary that by its nature is descriptive. And she was just explaining to me that, you know, she had visited Africa about 10 years previously and that listening to the audio description and just the richness of description really brought back so many memories for her and just enriched that whole viewing experience. And it really just, um, I guess, reminded me that, you know, we're connecting people with stories but also stories that connect into their lives and that's super important and so you know both captioning and audio description are really important services that en enable people to have to fully participate in in society so um, I think always remembering that um, is is important when you're working in this kind of space where you can feel a bit disconnected from the communities that you're serving because they're on the other side of a screen um, in their you know lounge at home um, and yeah, just really important to remember why we're here and and what the purpose of of Able is. That's for us kind of world up there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So, so Abel launched in, in 2013 and I, I sort of think about, you know, the spinoff came, around, came a year later and, and we were, the reason for the spinoff launching, not to make it all about us, was, was the arrival of Lightbox, which was, I think it um, maybe just predated Netflix or Netflix came a few months later or a few months before. But certainly streaming went from being not really a thing to being this kind of new, this kind of new toy. And now obviously it's, it's become, certainly for a bunch of demographics, probably the primary platform social has gone from being this kind of, uh, you know, funny little toy off to the side to being something that's eating the world for, for better or worse. What, how does, where is the boundary in terms of what, what you oversee? You know, I read an interview on this, on this one this morning with the censor who has a similar kind of sense of mission creep slash, you know, where, do, where does my responsibility end as screens and, and what goes through them become becomes infinite? And, and how has technology changed the role over the lifespan of the organisation? Yeah, so, I mean, Abel's vision is that uh, all New Zealanders can have equal access to audiovisual media. So that's a pretty big vision. Um, that's quite big. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess... One caveat is that, you know, we don't always have to be the ones to provide that accessibility. So we, we want to support and encourage accessibility in all its um, facets and, and all um, types of media. In terms of Abel's remit, I guess we're somewhat bound by what New Zealand On Air funds us to do. So we are funded by New Zealand On Air and we have a, a funding contract that lays out specifically where we should provide our services and how we should prioritise those. Um, so we provide uh, captioning an audio description for TVNZ, uh, captioning for Discovery, and captioning for Prime. Um, and we also provide our services for their online platforms as well. Um, but we're certainly, you know, I mean, in the nine years that Able has existed, media has just changed so much. And I think in the next couple of years, it's obviously about to change even, even more dramatically. But in terms of, I guess, that, that mission creep, I, I think what we're seeing is an increasing demand for accessibility in all areas and an increasing demand for captioning and audio description. Um, so Able does provide some commercial services. We um, work for film production companies. We work for online platforms, um, any any business really that wants to make their audiovisual content accessible. Um, we're keen to work with them. But we do try to, I guess, stay true to that that kind of key, key vision. Um, and then obviously, stay true to our, our funding um, remit from NZ on Air. So, yeah, I think that to some extent is how we define what we do and how we figure out what we should do and what we shouldn't do. 
I think, um, yeah, some, sometimes strategy is more about what you don't do than what you do do. In terms of some of the, the, the platforms that I'm assuming that you largely don't do, that, like that thinking about, which are still very video or audio, video, visual forward, likes of YouTube, Facebook, TikTok and so on, some of them have, have elements of uh, automated uh, captions and, and that is a technology that's, that's progressing all the time, though also prone to sometimes hilarious, sometimes really bleak um, fa- failures uh, of, of automation. What, what is your sort of sense of how the speech-to-text automation and, and the AI side of, of that space is evolving at the moment? Yeah, the growth in technology around captioning in particular has been just huge. So, I mean, at Able, we use automation and speech-to-text software. Um, we, we like to say that we use AI with a human touch. Um, so I think, like you say, um, AI can be pretty prone to um, errors and you don't want to be relying on that fully for, for live broadcast TV. But we use for our non-live captioning, we use um, automation technology, um, basically a a non-live program will be run through a voice engine and we'll get a transcript that the captioner will then fix and make sure that it's high quality and fix any errors. Um, And then for truly live captioning, like a a live news bulletin or say a live sports match, um, we use re-speaking voice-to-text software. So that is where a captioner listens to the audio in real time and re-speaks it into software that they have trained to recognise their voice, their intonation. And they re-speak it, um, adding in punctuation um, or any kind of voice commands like like new caption or um, new line, that kind of thing. Um, And then the voice-to-text software spits out the captions. Um, And obviously they're a little bit delayed, but they go out pretty pretty quickly and the software is pretty accurate now when we first started using it it was quite inaccurate there were a lot of errors it wasn't wasn't great but you know we're quite a few years on from that now and the technology just gets better every year and um, it's great to have that technology because it makes us quicker and better at what we do but I think you know the proliferation of of automation technology on large platforms like live captioning on YouTube and um, like you say on TikTok and Instagram you can you know you can put on automatic subtitles that's great for accessibility it's great for people that rely on those services it's not perfect so I think anyone that's producing content should absolutely involve a human in that process to to check it Um, but it can be totally adequate for some types of content so um, you know it's just great for people to have access in, in whatever way they can they can get it. One thing which we we've been told as a platform and, and you know the, the spin-off like most places is is imperfect and, and groping towards being better is that uh, within our area, for example, having descriptions of imagery um, can be really helpful from an accessibility perspective. And I you know I must confess that we don't we've we've certainly not historically, I'm not sure that we do yet fulfill what we could there, though though aspire to to be better. What what is your sense of how beyond um, you know, television, as we uh, generally think of it, the other parts of the media? What what can they and we do to to improve accessibility of of our products, where which are sort of next to broadcast television, but not part of it? 
Yeah, so I think the first and most important thing is to prioritise accessibility from the very start. So when you're building a new platform, say a new video player or a new website, um, to actually design it with accessibility in mind. It's much more difficult to bolt on accessibility features later and can be more expensive and can be a bit clunky. But if you prioritise accessibility in the design phase and make sure you get the right experts in the room, um, then you can have you know, you can add those features in at, at reasonably low cost. Doing it later can be a bit tricky, um, but certainly that's not to, not to stop anyone doing it later. Um, it's still really important to look at what can be done. So uh, I think the main, the main thing is really having, having a goal and working towards it. So deciding that as an organisation or as a media producer, you're going to prioritise accessibility and you're going to do it by doing you know, by achieving these three key objectives um, and, and, you know, starting somewhere. So some accessibility is better than no accessibility. And, you know, I'm very aware that sometimes the barrier is cost. So the costs can be, can become quite high if you commit to full and total accessibility, you know, the costs could be almost endless. But I think starting somewhere is really important and, and looking at what you can do yourself as well, rather than always needing to work with an external company, you could, you know, there's certainly ways you can have people within your own team improve accessibility. For instance, like you said, image descriptions are a great way to do that. Um, yeah. What, what about um, accessibility in, in uh, languages other than English? You know, for example, obviously we have a whole channel that's dedicated to, to the revival of Te Reo Māori as a language. Do, do you have involvement with that? And how does uh, accessibility, once you, it gets really complicated once you, you try to scale it to the number of different languages and cultures that, that we have in Aotearoa? Yeah, that, that idea of um, universal accessibility, I mean, it's very broad, isn't it? And um, certainly Te Reo Māori, subtitling is a focus for us. So what we do at ABLE, um, because the focus of our services is to provide closed captioning for the deaf and hard of hearing and other people that might benefit from them. But of course, in New Zealand content, you have a lot of Te Reo Māori um, in that content. So you might have in an episode of Shortland Street, you might have um, someone speaking in Te Reo for a few sentences. Mm. So for us as a you know an organisation in Aotearoa, it's super important to us that we get that right. Um, so what we do is focus on ensuring that we transcribe that correctly. Um, we don't translate, so we don't provide any translation services in-house at ABLE, um, but we do work with translators from time to time, at, you know, outside of ABLE um, to provide Tadeo translation. And I think, you know, at the moment there's some subtitling on Māori TV, uh, but that's not not for everything. Um, and that is not specifically for people that are deaf and hard of hearing. That's for people that are relying on that other language, you know, on having that translation, um, that language translation. So, yeah, I think it's an area that's only going to, to grow, really. Um, there's actually a, a shortage of, of translators in New Zealand. So that's going to be an issue going forward. And, I, you know, I think looking at that, that kind of academic pipeline now would be really important um putting you know the government perhaps putting some money there too um to support that because um that is going to be a skill set that's going to be really in high demand as as today continues to be re- revitalized i mean and that speaks to a kind of a broader point i suppose about 
the level of resourcing which exists. I mean, on some level, you t- talk about strategy being what you don't do, but also that that's also finance. Uh, on some level, do you, do you feel like the level of funding that comes through New Zealand on air, and and therefore the the sort of scope of work that that implies is is fit for sort of modern purpose, or do you think that on some level an expansion of, of scope and therefore of of budget is is inevitable, or, or certainly? very, you know, desirable. We'd certainly never say no to increased funding. True. Um, so ABLE actually received quite a significant funding boost back in 2020. So um, there was a, a public media fund of about $6 million that um, was announced in the, the government's May budget, and that was for improving public media. And some of that funding went to ABLE, so we had our funding increased from $2.9 million per year to $4.9 million per year, so almost doubled. And that was our first significant funding increase since ABLE had launched. So really, in, you know, until then, we had been always focused on trying to do more with the same amount of money, <laughs> and we were always trying to grow our services by becoming more efficient and by you know, increasing services where we could, but we just didn't have the budget to support that. So with that funding increase back in 2020, we have set on a an expansion strategy, basically. So the last couple of years, we've been growing ABLE services pretty rapidly. We've expanded our team quite significantly. Um, we've now got double the number of staff members we had when we launched. And um, our services have increased just exponentially since then. And that's been really great for captioning an audio description. What the, the main barrier that we still have to increasing services to the level that people that rely on captioning and audio description want and demand is broadcaster capability. So the funding is for ABLE to produce the services. It's not for broadcasters to implement the broadcast technology. So we know, for instance, that the blind community really want audio description on TVNZ on demand, but we already provide the audio description to TVNZ for broadcast TV We'd love them to make their platform accessible so that that audio description can get, you know, get that airtime on, on on demand as well. And the blind and low vision community would really benefit from that. So I think really what, in terms of what needs to change or what could change in the future, would probably be less around funding and more around legislation or requirements or um, expectations on broadcasters to, you know, if they're going to receive that this publicly funded service that actually benefits their their business, then they need to meet a certain, you know some certain obligations. On some level, you know that that's a, a choice. Yeah, you know, TVNZ's had some very profitable. Uh, you know, after years of descending profits, last couple of years have been pretty good to it. Uh, do you have a sense that it's in the roadmap for TVNZ on demand? Yeah, I do. So certainly, we're always talking with broadcasters about the improvements that we want to see and that our viewers want to see. And I would say there's all of the broadcasters that we work with are quite committed to improving accessibility in the future. It's just that sometimes that's too far away for the community that relies on it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not that reassuring to to go back to the community and say, well, it might be a couple of years before you see that service available. Um, that doesn't give people that sense of reassurance or of imminent change. So I think 
accessibility improvements are definitely on the roadmap for all of the broadcasters. It's just how far far away are they, exactly. So we're sort of running out of time a bit, but um, before we go, I'd I'd really like to talk to you. You've got another role, you've got quite a few other roles, but you're also chair of the Basement Theatre Trust. And Basement is, you know, I don't know for... For listeners who who might not be from from Auckland or be familiar with it, it's a it's a small venue. It might have what like a hundred hundred and twenty kind of capacity, but it's a place which is you know and it and it, it, it stages theatre and comedy and uh, probably a whole lot more besides. But it has an amazing culture around it, and it's brought. I think the one of the most extraordinary things it does is the way that it develops talent um, and provides a safe environment for particularly young and diverse talent to sort of figure out what they are. And you know, I think you only have to look at someone like Rose Matafeo who has came through the basement. That's where I, I first saw her uh, um, or, or one of the first places I saw her. And you sort of, you know, or, or even if you think about Eli Matthewson on, on Dancing with Stars, uh, you know, travesty, but uh, <laughs> the elimination on Monday, but also, you know, how impactful that was. You you really get a sense of how a, a tiny institution like that, which is which is a private trust, it's not it's, not, it's received some funding, I'm, I'm sure, but it it really feels like it it, it outperforms whatever its expectations or, or budget could be. D- tell me how you came to be involved with Basement and and what you think it provides both as an institution and and the lessons that could be drawn from any number of different uh, institutions about it. Yeah, so I joined um, the Basement Theatre Board uh, a few years ago now, it's maybe three or four years ago, as a trustee. And I, I came to that role because I was keen to get some governance experience and, and you know, um, contribute to a board. And um, there was a position available at Basement, and I was a huge fan of Basement, um, very keen attendee of Basement shows. And um, they just happened to be looking for a similar skill set to what I offered. And so I joined the board really not knowing what I was getting into. Um, but I absolutely love working with the team there. It's such a diverse group of people. And I think Basement's vision and purpose is just so cool. It's such a cool little organization to, you know, to be part of and really proud of the work that the Basement team does. So yeah, Basement is quite a unique little theatre really it's it's sort of this grungy you know basement venue that um that provides a a voice and a platform to artists that might not get that platform elsewhere and I think part of the beauty of basement is that it really focuses in on reflecting the community that it's in so it's really focused on reflecting the diversity of the the Tamaki Makoto art scene and it's such a cool place to go and be challenged by different art I've seen some pretty weird and unique <laughs> shows at Basement no doubt. Um, and um, and the team behind Basement are just so passionate and dedicated to what they do you know it's been a difficult couple of years for arts venues um, but I, I actually think the way that Basement has responded to COVID and the challenges of you know, operating a venue in a in a pandemic, um, which is almost impossible, <laughs> um, is is something that other arts venues can learn from, and actually just businesses in general. Um, but what Basement has done is taken a step back, and rather than 
just being reactive to, you know, government um, levels changing or, um, you know, the traffic light system and COVID protocols changing, Basement has taken a step back and gone, what are we here for and how can we support artists during this time? And so we've done things like um, financially supported artists during the pandemic when their shows have been cancelled and um, haven't been able to go ahead. It's been a really difficult time for independent artists. And um, Kat Ruka, who is our executive director at Basement, has done some great advocacy work um, with government around how artists need need support and what kind of support would be best for artists during COVID. So I think that Basement has taken COVID really as an opportunity to just reflect on what's our purpose and, and trying to continue to live that purpose through a, a pretty difficult time um, in the, the arts world. Uh, finally, you, you know, you're you're finishing up and it must be quite a, like a, a, an emotional thing to sort of wrestle with. Um, you know what but in terms of where you might might go beyond this what 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 uh sort of do you have a sense of what that is or you're you're also i, I hope, hope it's okay to, to reveal you're quite pregnant right now so obviously that that's gonna be a thing so um yeah well, what's next for you <laughs> yeah you're never meant to assume someone's pregnant aren't you unless you see the, <laughs> see the baby I've been explicitly told <laughs> yeah um yeah, so I've just got a couple of weeks left in the hot seat at Able, um, and then I'm expecting my second baby to arrive pretty soon. So I'm super excited to be handing the reins of Able over to the amazing Dan Buckingham, um, who has oh, been on incredible. the fold before. Um, and Dan's just such an amazing advocate for accessibility um, and just is the perfect person to take on the 100%. role um, at ABLE. So really excited about that. In terms of what's next for me, I'm planning to take a, take a bit of time at home with um, the new baby, so I think I'll have my hands hands full. But after that, I'm, I'm really keen to get, I really to do a bit of flexible work um, around um, consulting and advisory um, and really keen to stay in the accessibility space. But I'm really interested in, what's happening, I guess, at a government level around, you know, the new public media organisation. Um, I think there's real room for a commitment to universal accessibility there. So not just accessibility in the, the realm of captioning an audio description, but like we were talking about before, other languages um, really reflecting the community that we're in. So reflecting New Zealand through making sure that content is accessible to everybody um, in whatever way they want or need to consume that that content. So really interested in in getting into that space a little bit more generally. Um, so yeah, sort of quite open to what's, what's next. So if anyone's listening with some opportunities, hit me up next year. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that point you make about the opportunity, on some level, the whole underpinning of the new public media entity is that the current entities are not funded nor able to really serve the the, the totality of what the the population of this country needs from a public media perspective and it is a, it's as you say like if you design this stuff from the ground up it's cheaper and and um, and easier than if you try and smash it in at the back so hopefully that that is being um, considered by those doing that that very hard system design uh, work from now. Hey, thank you so much uh, for coming on this podcast, Wendy. I so appreciate it. It's been really fun. Thanks so much for having me. The Fold is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network together with Vodafone. It was hosted by Duncan Grieve. 
produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. To find out how Vodafone can help you reach your personal and business potential, visit vodafone.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi, Tiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.